It's time for the Apple Seed. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and in each full hour-long weekly episode of The Apple Seed, we bring you family-friendly stories of all kinds. Tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, personal and family tales, and more. And they're all designed to open the floodgates of memory and conversation between generations at your house. Sometimes those stories are elaborately produced and immersive audio dramas filled with adventure and wonder. And sometimes they're just great performances of great stories by great storytellers. In fact, one of the best things we get to do here on The Appleseed is to bring some of our favorite storytellers to The Appleseed Studio, capture their stories live before our terrific studio audience, and then bring those stories to you. And so we wanna do something a little special today. We wanna give you a little taste of what those storyteller recording sessions are like by bringing you an entire hour with the great LA storyteller, Antonio Sacre. You've heard him on the show before. In fact, a couple of the stories you'll hear today have appeared in episodes this season on the show. And of course, there'll be new stuff too. In fact, it'll be a little like a fantastic concert with your favorite band. You know, when the band plays some of your favorites and also a couple of new songs too, (laughs) that's what it's gonna be like. Antonio tells stories about his family that are sure to bring to mind memories of your own. It's going to be a great hour. Let's join Antonio in the Appleseed Performance Studio. Thank you. It is great to be here. I live in Los Angeles, and every June, as we're driving down the street, there's that guy who gets out of the car. He's got the number one dad shirt on, on Father's Day. And my children always say, Dad, how did he win? the number one dad. And I think about it, I said, well, honey, I think it's the number of mistakes I make in a day. And my children love to recount all the mistakes I make in a day. And usually the first mistake of the day happens within five or six minutes of waking up. But we were driving in the car about five years ago in the middle of an epic Los Angeles drought. My daughter was three years old and she had never seen rain in the car. I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in Delaware. And so I have these memories of watching the raindrops beat against the window and seeing the drops form into other drops and have race drops as they would come down. We didn't have iPads back then, so I was like, (laughs) that was how I would do it. And we just would listen to the rain and then we'd go under a bridge and then the sound of the wipers and then the rain again. And as we were driving along, I'm doing the thing that I do. I'm looking in the rearview mirror and trying to prevent them from fighting. When I was a kid, there was no such thing as seatbelts or car seats. And so we were free-range kids to fight as much as we could in the back seat. But my kids are in 19-point harnesses, so they're just all like this. And somehow they are able to reach out of the harness and start punching and fighting. So I'm looking in the rearview mirror and I'm trying to mitigate. No, 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 Henry, no, 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 no. Put your hand back in that, okay. Okay, driving along. And now Nina is getting into the act. Nina, no, 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 stop, stop that thing that you're just, stop that. My wife, eyes on the road, eyes on the road, Los Angeles traffic. And I'm trying to mitigate the fighting in the back seat when all of a sudden it starts to rain. And my daughter looks out of the window. Daddy, what's that? Ah, it's rain, honey, it's rain. And for a moment, we have silence in the car. It's beautiful, there's no fighting. We're just watching the rain. And I'm thinking about the Volari station wagon in the 1970s. And my mom listening to the AM radio, those old songs about love. And it's peaceful in the car. And maybe this year, I'm going to win the number one dad. And we're moving along. When the fighting starts happening again, and there's quick descent into the mistakes that I make in a day. Put no snacks for either one of you if you keep that up. Stop it. There's no dinner for either one of you. And my wife's calming hand on my knee. It says to me, just breathe. And I do. And I'm watching my children again, watching the rain, and the fighting starts again. And now I'm at my wit's end when, miraculously, in the middle of this drought-marred city, a rainbow appears in the sky. Symbol of God's love from ages and ages ago. And I whisper just loud enough for the whole car to hear, a rainbow. And my son looks out of the window, and he says, like an incantation, like a prayer, a rainbow. And my wife looks out and she says, a rainbow. And my three-year-old daughter looks out the other way and says, where? (laughs) I can't see it. Oh, honey, just turn your head to the right. 
Uh, I still can't see it. No, honey, turn your head. Turn your head all the way around to the other side. I still can't see the rainbow. And now she's sobbing. No, it's a rainbow. What's a rainbow? And I'm like, turn your head around. Just turn and look at the rainbow. It's beautiful and peaceful. Look at the rainbow. And she's crying. And my wife says, honey, just pull the car over. Oh, it's that easy. I pull the car over and she extracts that screaming Gorgon from the back seat and (laughs) holds her up to the sky. And Nina sees her first rainbow. <sighs> Thanks, mommy. <laughs> and our hearts melt and smiles in our face. And then we sit down on the edge of the road. And then the clouds come over and the rainbow's gone. And Nina looks up at me and she says, Daddy, again. into a monologue about the precociousness of precipitation and how you need an angle of the light in between that refracts and it creates the colors. And my wife is observing the weather and she sees the wind blowing. She says, honey, just be quiet. And she goes like this. Like some ancient goddess and the cloud moves away and the rainbow reappears and Nina's all smiles again and she says, thanks, mommy. See, daddy, mommies are the best. Nina's Rainbow, a story told for you by Antonio Sacre, recorded live in the Appleseed studio. We're spending the whole hour today with Antonio. His stories about his family are sure to bring to mind memories of your own. The recordings we made with Antonio were compiled into an album of Antonio Sacre stories called World's Second Best Dad. And the album is the winner of both the National Parenting Product Award and a Family Choice Award. And you can find the album and more of Antonio's work at antoniosacre.com. There's a lot to come this hour. We'll hear Antonio talk about a family road trip to Pedro's south of the border, a whale-watching excursion off the coast of California, and even a story about a beloved teddy bear. Let's get back to the magic of storytelling in the Appleseed Studio. Shall we? My father comes from Cuba. He came from Havana, Cuba, and settled in Miami with all the other Cubans in Little Havana in Miami. Somehow he ended up in Boston, Massachusetts, where he met my Boston Irish-American mother. And the two got married. And so I am the son of a Cuban man and an Irish-American woman, or like one of my friends calls me, a leprechaun. <laughs> and uh, my, on my, I was born, and on my very first birthday, my mom gave birth to twins. So I've never had my own birthday. There's three of us. We all have the exact same birthday. And uh, I'm one year older. And uh, and, and for a few years, it looked like we were triplets. And that's what my mom had to deal with. Well, we would get in the car in that Volari station wagon I'd mentioned earlier, and we would go on road trips. How many of you remember road trips? I was on a plane this morning, and there was a very fussy child who the mom was able to give an iPad to, and she was totally fine after that, and I was grateful for that technology. And I know that my mom would have done anything to have something like that to make us quiet back in the day. Because what would happen in our car rides is we would have to invent games to keep us occupied. And you may remember some of these games. We would leave Delaware, where we ended up living, and we would go seven hours north to the Boston Irish family. Seven hours with young kids in the car is a long time. And sometimes we would go the other direction. 19 hours in the car to Miami, Florida. Now, I am much older than some of you here and probably about as old as some other people here. When I was a kid, we had no iPads. We had no iPhones. We had no CD players. We didn't have a cassette player. We only had an AM radio in the car. I know you all know AM radios. Do you remember the old school AM radios with the red dial that you would turn and you would roll in on a station? You would have to tune it to the left, to the right, and you'd get a station for as long as the antenna lasted, which if you were traveling was sometimes 30 minutes, sometimes 60 minutes, and the station would fade, and you would have to literally go through silence on the radio. Can you imagine a kid today having nothing to listen to? How many millions of songs can they hear on their devices? Back then, there would literally be three stations on the radio and only one that we all could agree on. So the first half hour of the trip, we would settle in on that one station that made the three boys in the back and the two parents up front happy. 
Well, when that station started to fade, my mom had to invent games to play. We played iSpy. You've probably played iSpy. We started to play the license plate game. Do you remember the license plate game? Lots of different ways to play it. When we were younger, it was just recognizing the numbers and try to recognize them in order from one to nine and backwards from nine to one. And then when we got a little bit older, adding the numbers on the license plates. And as we got older, multiplying the numbers on the license plates. And then the square roots of the numbers on the license plates. And then it became geography. Where is that state in relation to we are? West of here or north of here or south of here? On the East Coast, it was all of that. There was no states east of us. And, um, and then we would try to make up words from the letters on the license plates. And what was the capital of those states? Now, I don't know if kids play, is there an app for a license plate game now or are kids? <laughs> Turns out, I've learned as I've been, been storytelling in schools the last 20 years or so, that when kids' eyes are scanning the horizon, this is pre-reading ability. So I spy is actually helping kids to read and picking out letters and numbers on license plates is the same thing. My mom was just trying to keep us quiet. So the license plate game worked for about another 30 minutes or so and then we would get into the fields south of Delaware, the farm fields. I know we're in farm, there's farmland not too far from this big city for sure. And my mom invented, and you may know this game, maybe you don't, the counting cows game. <laughs> the way we played it was if you had cows on your side of the car and you could count them out loud, that was your score. But only if you could count them before they were gone. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. My brother Robert on the right side. I've got seven. I'd be on the left. One, two, three, four, five, six. Ah, six. Seven to six. Henry Hughes sat in the middle. He hated sitting in the middle. How many of you had to sit in the middle when you were younger? But the advantage of sitting in the middle is the kid who sat in the middle always won the counting cow game because he was allowed to count cows on both sides of the car. So the counting cow game worked for a while. And then if you saw a cow that was laying down, you added two. And then if you saw a goat, you added seven. And if you saw a sheep, you subtracted 14. And is that a sheep or a goat? I don't know. And a big discussion about sheeps and goats and another half hour of the 19-hour road trip was chewed up. And then my mom invented, I don't know if you have this variation, that if you passed the cemetery on your side of the car, all of your cows died. <laughs> But if you passed a church, they were resurrected. So you had to remember. So it was up and down and up and down. And the cow came, would eat up another hour in the car. And then three or four hours into the 19-hour road trip to Miami, Florida, my brother Robert asked the question that children have been asking since the beginning of time. Are we there yet? And my dad is driving. And he looked in the rearview mirror and he says, No, mijo, we have like uh, 17 hours more left to go. Is that a long way? Sure, dad, my dad says, sure, it's a long way. We have to stop in a hotel tonight and another hotel tomorrow, and then we'll be at grandmother's house. My brother's looking out of the window, and he's very bored. And then he sees a sign, a billboard. It says, Pedro's south of the border, 900 miles. My brother says, Dad, did you see that sign? See, sí, mijo, ya, ya lo vi. I saw that sign. What do you think Pedro's south of the border is? My dad says, I don't know, but we'll find out in 900 miles. <laughs> is that a long way, Dad? My dad could have said yes. If it was today, he would just Google, how long till we get to the Pedro South of the border? But he turns it into a math problem. Mijo, we're traveling 70 miles an hour. When are we going to get to Pedro South of the border? Go. And the three of us try to do this math problem. <laughs> it kept us quiet for 30 minutes. <laughs> dad, we'll probably get to Pedro South of the border tomorrow around lunchtime. And then my dad sped up to 72 miles an hour. When are we going to get there now? Oh half an hour. Dad, we're going to get there like five minutes before lunchtime. And my dad sped up and slowed down and sped up until finally we were smart kids. Dad, you're just trying to trick us into doing math. Ho, ho, ho. So we're driving along. So finally, after we got bored of the math game, my brother finally said, Dad, what do you think Pedro south of the border is? And my dad did the magic thing. What do you think it is? And then he listened. And the three of us had a massive conversation about what it could be. My brother Henry said, maybe it's an amusement park, Dad. Maybe it's got a roller coaster and it's got bumper cars. And I say, maybe it's a big swimming pool. We all can go swimming. My brother Robert says, yeah, maybe it's an amusement park with a swimming pool and a great big trampoline park. And we can jump on the trampoline into the swimming pool and off of the diving board onto a roller coaster. And Robert's imagination <laughs> just starts going crazy. He's imagining this amazing wonderland, Pedro's south of the border. And then, quiet in the car, another radio station, 20 or 30 minutes, maybe another farm, playing the counting cows game, and then another billboard. Pedro, south of the border, 815 miles. Dad, when are we gonna get there? 
do the math. We do the math again. We come to the same conclusion tomorrow at lunchtime. <laughs> and each time, my brother says, what do you think it is? And my dad says, what do you think it is? And we keep inventing more and more things. Finally, we say, what do you think it is, mom? And my mom says, I think it's a spa where I can get a massage. <laughs> Dad, what do you think it is? I don't know, mijo, maybe it's a delicious restaurant. We can have beautiful food. And then four of us in the car get tired of what is Pedro south of the border going to be, except for my brother Robert. My brother Robert is inventing things that didn't even exist yet. Dad, it's a rocket ship that we can all go up into the sky and we can orbit the moon. Dad, it's this thing where like you can go into a submarine and then they have scuba masks that come on you and you're out there scuba diving and then you can launch up onto the roller coaster and you go around the roller coaster and he's just going crazy with Pedro south of the border. We stop at a hotel the next morning, billboard, Pedro south of the border, 200 miles. Robert says, Dad, go 200 miles an hour. We'll be there in one hour. My dad says, no, mijo, we're not doing that. Go faster than that. But finally, the miles are kicking off, and the last billboard says, Pedro's south of the border, two miles. And this, you can Google this now when you turn on your phones later on. It says, kids, start screaming now. Your parents will stop. <laughs> My dad says, no screaming. Well, of course we're going to stop. And then one part of the mystery was solved. Just south of the border of North Carolina and South Carolina is Pedro's south of the border. South of the border of North Carolina. And we get into South Carolina and we exit down this long dirt road. And we turn the corner into this huge, empty parking lot with this little taco stand in the corner. Oh. And this rickety sign that says, Welcome to Pedro's Tacos. <laughs> and my brother Robert just... And he just starts sobbing. That nine-year-old sobbing, just snot everywhere. He's just a taco stand. And my dad's trying to say, well, well, mijo, you know, it's lunchtime and I love tacos. Mom says, I love tacos. I said, I love tacos. Robert said, I love tacos too, but I hate Pedro. I hate Pedro. <laughs> and there's nothing else. So we get tacos. And the tacos are delicious. And we're eating the tacos, but Robert just cries all the way through South Carolina, all the way through Georgia all the way into Florida, and there's a sign out there, and you're not going to believe this, but my dad is from Cuba. It said, Disney World, 20 miles. And my dad said, I wonder what Disney World is. And my brother says, it better be better than Pedro south of the border. <laughs> and we get to Disney World, and it is amazing. And Space Mountain is something my brother never forgot. My dad's screaming more than anybody. And we get off that roller coaster, and to this day, my brother denies that he ever cried that hard about Pedro south of the border because all he remembers is the roller coaster at Space Mountain. And every time we tell the story, it gets longer and longer, and he cries longer and longer. And finally, just another seven hours until we get to Abuela's house, my grandmother Mimi's house in Little Havana, and she's waiting. ¿Qué tal fue el viaje? How was the trip? My dad, fue un desastre. Era un Pedro south of the border, que era no más que taco. Estaba ahí llorando, llorando. My brother, it's amazing, grandmother. We went on Space Mountain. It was so great. And we had that meal that I can think of every time the smell of it and the sound of the pressure cooker in the kitchen, the, chick, 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 the little hat dancing on the pot. And then we sit on the couch, all of us, because there's nothing on TV. Do you remember nothing on TV? Do you remember when it would turn to, to snow at midnight and the flag would come and that would be it? There's nothing on TV. It's too hot to go outside. My grandmother's sitting there looking at me and me looking at her. And every year, I would sit there and I would ask her the same question. Abuela, ¿cuántos años tienes? How old are you? She'd say, ay, mijito. Nunca pregunta a una mujer cubana cuántos años tiene. Never ask an old Cuban lady how old she is. But grandmother, how old are you really? Bueno, mijito, yo tengo 15 años. I'm 15 years old. Abuela, no puede ser. You can't be 15. I'm almost 15. How is it possible that you are younger than my dad? She said, es un milagro. It's a miracle. <laughs> Abuela, it's not a miracle. How old are you? Bueno, mijito, yo tengo 16 años. And she would go through each age, one over the other, all the way up. I would ask this. It was just nothing else to do but play this game. How old are you really? I'm 16. How old are you really? I'm 17. And we kept going and climbing through the ages until she got into the 60s and the 70s. 75 years old. Abuela, que vieja. Si, mijito. Yo soy vieja. I'm old. You're the oldest person I've ever met. Si, mijito. Yo soy muy vieja. I've never met anybody. Ah, ya, ya, mijo. Está bien. No te preocupes. <laughs> I know I'm old, it's okay. 
She said, yo soy tan vieja que yo tengo una pata en la tierra en otro en cascarón de plátano. She said, I'm so old, I've got a foot in the grave and another on a banana peel. <laughs> She said, I could slip and die any minute. Abuela, that's not funny. No, mijito. Es parte de la vida. It's part of life. We all get old. We all die. Abuela, I don't like this talk. No, mijito. Es posible que cualquier momento yo puedo... silent and she holds her breath but I can see her breathing but her face is so old and wrinkly she looks dead abuela I see you breathing <laughs> abuela that's not funny and one tiny part of my 12 or 11 year old brain said abuela te moriste did you just die and without moving her lips she says si <laughs> then how are you speaking es un milagro it's a miracle and we would play that game over and over and over again. And in that living room was the beginning of my storytelling career. I told you this earlier, Sam. I wish I journaled more of those moments, because some of those moments I journaled, and some of those stories I turned into picture books and stories that I tell on the circuit. And some of those memories are gone. And when my family gets together, we tell those stories of those trips down to that house, past those places. Pedro South of the Border now is a huge, amazing thing with roller coasters and all kinds of things. And my grandmother's house is still there. But all of those old people died old and peacefully. And now all we have are their memories. Pedro's South of the Border. Just one of the stories shared with us to share with you during a visit to the Appleseed Studio from Antonio Sacre, screenwriter, author, and storyteller from Los Angeles. Now, the story you just heard, of course, is one we brought you in Season 2, Episode 14 of The Appleseed. And you can find that episode and every episode of the show at byuradio.org on the BYU Radio app or by Googling The Appleseed Podcast. Up next, a story about memories of snow. I'm Sam Payne. It's a special episode of The Appleseed today in which we're spending the whole hour with storyteller Antonio Sacre. The stories are filled with memories of family, and it's very likely you'll hear stories that remind you of your family. We always hope that the stories that you hear on The Appleseed fill you with memories that you can share with the people that you love. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. You've heard a story about a miraculous rainbow and a story about a family road trip, and up next, a story about what happens when your son in Los Angeles has never seen snow before. Here's Antonio. Thank you. When my son was two years old, he asked me what snow was. <clears throat> Living in Los Angeles, he had never seen it. And again, it brought back memories to me. And I immediately started telling him all of the snow stories I had growing up in Delaware. Now, Delaware is not as snowy as many other places, but when it does snow in Delaware, the whole state shuts down. We only need three inches of snow, and we'd run to the radio and find out if our school was canceled the next day. Do you remember snow days? Do you get them here in Utah? You probably don't. You probably need like six feet of snow before you get a snow day. Delaware, you need two or three inches of snow. You get a snow day, six feet, shuts down the state for a long, long time. That happened once when I was younger. And so I told my son that snow, he was two and a half before his sister was born. Snow falls from the sky and he's trying to think, oh, what is that going to be? And then I remembered my mom putting us in the Volari and driving north to Boston. My mom has four brothers and sisters and all of those family members had many kids. So there are 15 cousins from Eileen Rose, the oldest, all the way down through little Marky Keefe, the youngest. 15 cousins all born within eight years of each other, one after another in every family, kind of like an LDS family, actually. I've learned that in Utah. I never met bigger families until I started coming here. And, and so um, we would go, and my cousin Maddie was the exact same age as I. Maddie lived near a cranberry bog. Do you know what a cranberry bog is? In Massachusetts, where my family lived, uh, some of them lived near cranberry bogs. They grow cranberries, uh, they look like plants, but in the winter, for some reason, they cover them in water and they are preserved in the water. I don't know how it works necessarily, but we would go skating on the cranberry bogs. So you would skate on this clear ice and you'd look down and there were the red berries underneath your feet. 
Now, in Massachusetts, there is the time of the year when everyone tests the ice to see if it's safe enough to go ice skating. And the way they do it is they send the youngest, dumbest kid <laughs> to skate under the ice, and when he or she falls through, they realize it's not good enough, and then we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and then finally it's good enough to go ice skating. My uncle is a retired firefighter, and it was, uh, it's, I made a joke of it, and I should, shouldn't be so light about it, because every winter he was tasked to slither out on the ice and reach in, attached by a human daisy chain of firefighters and ropes and hoses if they could, and fish some kid, freezing and cold and scared, out of the ice. When the ice was thick enough to skate, my cousins and I would play ice hockey. And we would play with whatever we had. Sometimes we didn't have a puck, so we would take off somebody's mittens, and we'd mash them up into a ball. It was always the youngest kid again, because, you know, <laughs> I don't know why my hands are cold, but we're going to have to play hockey. So we started playing <laughs> hockey. Now, because they grow up on skates, my cousins and all their friends were amazing skaters. From Delaware, we were disadvantaged, but we would do the best we could. And one epic day, we started playing hockey. And it started snowing. It's hard to skate on the snow, but it didn't matter. We brushed off the snow, our own little human Zamboni machines, <laughs> and we kept playing. And it got colder and colder. Now, I did have my gloves on. I wasn't the kid without gloves on. But I said, Maddie, I can barely feel my fingers. They're freezing cold. What should we do? He said, we should play more hockey. And we kept playing. We played some more. And now my toes were getting that frostbit feeling. Maddie, I can't feel my toes anymore. What should we do? Play more hockey. Those kids would not stop playing hockey. We played until it was very dark. And then somebody lost the puck. I said, Maddie, it's dark. There's no puck. What should we do? play imaginary hockey. So we're skating around and we're playing imaginary hockey and it became this a game. I pass it to you, Maddie. Maddie, I, I juke Julie. Julie does it. And we're playing imaginary hockey at nine o'clock at night on a freezing winter day on a cranberry bog half covered in snow when all of a sudden Maddie's mother, my aunt, says, what are you boys and girls doing? Everybody freezes. Nothing. She says, are you out there playing hockey? Yeah. What should we do, Aunt Joan? She says, do you have the puck anymore? No. She says, well, play more hockey. And back inside she goes. I told my son that. My son said, Dad, let's go play hockey. And he says, Dad, let's go see the snow. Now, in Los Angeles, you can drive a few hours up into the mountains to see the snow. So when my son was about two and a half years old, I packed him in the car and my wife, and we drove out of the city, and we hit the road that goes up into the mountains. And as we're driving along, I'm telling my son stories of growing up in snow and snow days and what a snow day is and listening to the radio and the hockey story. And my son is all excited. And he looks out. He says, Dad, look, snow. And he points at a white truck that's going by. Oh, honey, that's white, like snow, but that's a truck. That's not snow. Oh, okay, Dad. Dad, snow. He points at a billboard that's got some white in the billboard. Oh, yeah, honey, there's white in the billboard, but that's not, you'll know what snow is, honey, when you see it. And I can't quite tell if he just wasn't figuring out the concept or if he was just playing the game that anything white he saw was snow. As we're going up the mountain, my wife turns to me and she said, did you check the weather report? Is there snow up in the mountains right now? And I said, no, I didn't. I thought you did. So as we're driving up the mountain, my son very excited to see snow. We don't know if there is going to be snow up there. And I'm, now I'm starting to worry. And we're driving up, and he's pointing everything as snow. And all of a sudden, my son says, Dad, snow. And he points, and it is miles in the distance, a little tiny peak of snow. Yes, honey, that's snow. Let's go there, Dad. Oh, honey, we can't get to that mountain. That is too far. Dad, I want to see the snow. And now I want to get him to the snow, but that's impossible. And I said, no, honey. And I'm trying to explain to him. And he's two and a half in the back seat, two hours into our car ride. And he is not being able to be consoled. And my wife says, just keep driving. Again, that hand on my knee that always helps me just breathe into it. And then finally, my son says, Dad, snow. And he points at a dumpster next to a, a grocery store. Honey, that's a dumpster. No, Dad, next to the dumpster. And I look, and sure enough, next to the dumpster is the detritus of where the snow plows came and scraped it all off of the parking lot and piled it up next to the dumpster. It is covered in the black tar, and there's little bits of, little, little bits of white snow kind of sticking out, but it's just really, it's just dirt and grime next to a dumpster. And I'm like, well, honey, yeah, that, that is snow, but I think there's probably snow if we keep, Dad, stop and let's see the snow. No, no, honey, that's, that's dirty. Dad, stop the car. And he's now 
a two and a half year old in charge of the family. We <laughs> absolutely stop the car, unbuckle him from the car seat, and he throws himself on that grimy pile, and he does, Dad, a snow angel. <laughs> and he's getting grime and little bits of snow and ice, and he makes the tiniest little snowman, a little piece of snow with another little piece of snow and a piece of grime. Dad, look, it's a snowman. And we were playing in the snow. My wife is snapping pictures of this. And I'm like, let's brush off and get in the car, and we drive just a little bit longer and sure enough there is real snow on the ground with real kids sledding on it dad let's sled we have to pull over and buy one of those plastic sleds for 78 dollars at the 7-eleven and I, there's no price that's too high for this and so my son gets up now from the car looking up it looks okay and there's kids going down but as the dad of a two and a half year old looking down at it this thing looks like a sled run of death. It is on the edge of a little drop-off that goes down into a bunch of little boulders. And on the other side, there's um, big trees. And at the very end, there's two, there's three ways to exit. <clears throat> the snow way, which is really nice and soft, and most kids are navigating that. Another massive boulder that you could smash into, or a huge tree over here. And I'm trying to explain to my son how to steer a plastic sled, and I can't, I'm trying to talk to him about it, when the next thing I know I hear, whee! and down the chute he is going go to the right and he's trying to steer and it's gonna go off this little ledge and he's gonna die no it's gonna go over here he's gonna smash into a tree and he's gonna no he's gonna smash into the boulder and he's gonna die everything is just death oh no 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 and he hits that smooth slope and all the big boys and girls go way to go kid huge smile he truds up with his snow boots and down again and my wife and I smile as he's going up and down this icy chute next to these boulders and these trees and we're sitting there thinking about it when all of a sudden his sled goes down and it turns around and I'm looking at his face as he's going backwards down the hill and he thinks it's fun but I know that he has no way to know where he's going and of course the sled is going off to that little ridge and then over to a tree and it goes and it smashes into that boulder at the bottom it snaps he's on the ground sobbing I am running sliding slipping down that hill trying to get to my son and I look at him and he's crying and he's in his snowsuit and everything I said honey are you okay yes are you hurt no well you're really crying because I'm hungry. <laughs> we forgot snacks in the car. We didn't get lunch or dinner. He is starving and freezing and half dead on the And we peel him out of the rock and put the, 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 the sled in the car. And we drive to the closest place we can find. It's a diner. And the waitress comes out. She's so sweet. She says, welcome to the mountains. Well, you can have breakfast for dinner if you want. And my son says, breakfast for dinner? Do you have pancakes? She said, yes, we have pancakes. Mom, can I have pancakes for dinner? Of course, honey. He eats pancakes for dinner. We get in the car, strap him in. He falls asleep in the car. Down the mountain we go. We get back to our house in Los Angeles. And I peel him out of the car seat. Do you remember peeling your kids out of the car seat? Do you remember being carried half asleep, pretending that you were asleep as your parents are carrying you in the house? And I try to brush his teeth and put him in his pajamas and lay him down. I said, honey, you went to see the snow. Yeah. What do you remember about it, baby? He said, we had pancakes for dinner. <laughs> and that's my son's first trip to the snow. A story that storyteller Antonio Sacre calls Pancakes for Dinner, a story recorded live in the Appleseed studio. We love bringing favorite storytellers to the studio. It's one of the best things we do here on the show. It's right up there with bringing those stories to you. And up next, an Antonio Sacre favorite, a story we shared with you in Season 2, Episode 1 of The Appleseed. It's a story about reading books and about taking the family whale-watching. Here's Antonio. I was always a good student as a kid, but I was not a big reader. But everyone in my family was. My mother, my brothers, my dad, my dad reading in both languages. My brothers both read what they had to read in school, but they also read what they wanted to read. I didn't want to read anything. When I was in seventh grade, my brother in sixth grade was reading Stephen King. There were these horror books with these horror images, and it was scary to look at them. And then one day, I opened the book, and I read it cover to cover. The first book that I ever read cover to cover also gave me nightmares all night, <laughs> but it was 
the first time that I realized that there was reading that you could do for pleasure or for terror or for fun. And so I went to the library, and I'm old enough that there was not that many Stephen King novels. And over the course of the next six months or a year, I read every single Stephen King novel, and I was not able to find any more. I said, Mom, I've read the last Stephen King novel. She says, oh, honey, that's great. You're good. You've been reading a lot. I said, no, but there's no more Stephen King novels. She says, well, honey, um, there are other books in the library. <laughs> I'm like, they're not going to be as good as Stephen King. She's probably not as good as Stephen King novels, but I, I, I guarantee you there's probably a good book there. I'm like, Mom, what should I read? And she got a Hemingway novel, and I think it was The Sun Also Rises, and she gave it to me, and I read it. And I didn't read it like I read the Stephen King novel, but as I, after I finished it, I said, Mom, this guy's pretty good. He's not as good as Stephen King, but he's okay. Has he written anything else? And he did. And I read all of a Hemingway. And that led to, years later, an English degree from a college where I read uh, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. That was a difficult book to get through in college. And out of college, as I was pursuing storytelling, I also was pursuing acting. And the first professional play I ever get cast in was an adaptation of Moby Dick. It was a puppet adaptation of the show. And so I had to read it again. And then the show got extended and I read it again. So Moby Dick has become a book that I visit at different times in my life. My wife is an English teacher in high school. She's an AP English teacher and she has a master's degree in English. And somehow being an AP English teacher with a master's in English, she never got around to reading Moby Dick. And so she took down one of the copies that I had and was reading Moby Dick as my son was just getting involved in books. Dad, what's that story? That's a story, honey, that I'll have to tell you when you get older. Dad, I want to hear the story right now. And I had no idea how to turn a 700-page novel about American whaling experience from the 1800s into a story for my son, and I was trying to work it out when my wife found a little bored picture book called The Cozy Classics that tells these ancient big stories in one-word pages. So this is how I told part of the Moby Dick story to my son. Boat. <laughs> There's an image of a boat with sails. Find. There's a sailor in the crow's nest looking for a whale. Now, all of the excitement and horror of the story I didn't share, and this was all he needed to scratch that Moby Dick itch, and it was totally fine. And then, years later, I'm going along, and my wife was talking to her high school students just a couple of months ago, and she said, who has read Moby Dick? And one hand went up, only one kid. It's a tough book to read in high school. And she said, my husband loves that book. He's read it many times. And a week later, I had a four-page handwritten note from a modern teenager wanting to discuss Moby Dick. He said, I hear you have sailed the vast seas reading about Moby Dick, and I, and in flowerly language, just like Melville, this brilliant high school senior, wrote a four-page, and I, it had been years since I'd read the book, and so I'm like, oh yeah, Moby Dick is great, it's really exciting, blah, blah, blah. And then I got a six-page letter handwritten back about how I have failed him in my pursuit. So I have reread the Moby Dick book recently, and as I was reading it, uh, the, the magic of Google when you think something and all of a sudden you're getting ads about that thing. <laughs> I don't know how it happened, but whale watching expeditions were showing up on my phone. I wasn't Googling Moby Dick, I was reading it, but somehow they found it and I saw, oh, there's one not too far from our house in Los Angeles. And so, four weeks ago, we piled in the car. Now, it was only 27 miles away, which in here would probably, well, no, not, I've been in some rough traffic here. In Delaware, 27 miles would take you 27 minutes. In Utah, maybe it would take you an hour. In Los Angeles, it takes two and a half hours. So we gave ourselves two and a half hours to get 27 miles down to Long Beach. And on the way, my kids were doing the thing that kids do in the car. And they're fighting. And, it's, and I'm saying, well, we're going to go on a whale watch. We're going to see whales. It's going to be great. And they're just not 
having any of it. There's no rain, there's no rainbow, there's nothing. I keep turning up the radio. We have, for better or for worse, are no screen in the car family because of being storytelling. None of the stories are working and it's just a disaster. It's a bad, bad thing. We finally get to the, the parking lot. Now we're just barely on time for the boat. The boat is gonna leave. The tickets are $50 each and we're rushing and the kids don't wanna put on sunscreen and they don't wanna put on their hat and they don't wanna put on their sunglasses and it's becoming one of those maybe mistakes. One of the reasons why I'm not the number one dad and my <laughs> wife is telling me just breathe. I'm just trying to breathe and just get on the boat and we get over there and we're in line and finally just as they're closing the rope we get onto the boat and the first thing the guy says on the loudspeaker of the boat is we can't guarantee a whale sighting but it's going to be a fun boat ride and both of my kids just have one of those epic meltdowns. It's just bad. And they're just clomping around and I'm facing and then we try to get there's no seats on the boat. All the seats, there's these beautiful, loungy, awesome seats, like these couches back here. And they were just, there, and we had to stand at the rail in front of the boat. And the second the boat started moving, my kids started smiling. They started seeing the birds on the water. They saw little tiny fish. They saw the big boats, the, the Queen Mary, I think that's the boat that's there. And then the cranes and the, the port. And we're on the water before the breaks just moving slowly. My kid's happy. It's all worth it. Then we hit the brakes and the waves start moving. And both of my kids, because we didn't have a seat and we were late, are in the very front, the bow of that boat, moving with the waves. And for 30 minutes, we had those 30 magical moments as a family, discovering the ocean for the first time, watching it. And the woman is trying to figure out what's going on and may not be whales, but it's beautiful and it's all good. And then she says, we heard that there's a whale somewhere and they go, but there's no whale. And now I turn to my children and I say, you know what? Maybe we're not gonna see a whale today. When all of a sudden the woman says, 12 o'clock. And way in the distance, miles away, there's a little tiny, tiny mist on the ocean. And my son goes, And I try to explain to the whole thing about Moby Dick, but nobody's having it. They're all laughing. And now all the kids are yelling, there she blows. And the captain, she throttles it. And we're going out to where that space is and then shuts off the engines. And we're just there on Long Beach, four miles off of shore, still seeing the shore. It's white, just calm. And then... And you're not going to believe it, but there are pictures of it, and there's a video. I have a video of it. A massive whale comes out and shoots a spout into the air, so much that you can smell it. And it starts to curve, and the woman gets super excited. It's a finback whale, the second largest whale in the ocean. It keeps curving and curving, and comes the dorsal fin and the flukes, and it smashes. It makes a fluke print on the ocean, and the whale is gone, and the crowd is screaming and laughing and yelling, and my son can't believe it. And then the whale is gone, and my son looks up at me, and my daughter looks up at me, and all of us are sharing these moments. And I captured that moment on my phone. I had it there somehow. And then it was gone. And she said, let's go back to shore. We turned the boat around. And as we're going, she said, you saw the finback whale. And she gave us a big lesson about the finback whale. When out of nowhere, dolphins come leaping. There's a, she said, oh my goodness, this is the biggest pod of dolphins we've ever seen. And they're, I, I can't even count them. They're leaping in front and behind and they're leaping in the wake and she's giving a big lesson about dolphins and my children cannot contain themselves. The adults cannot contain themselves. I've never seen anything like this. We're on the edge looking down. I feel like I can reach over and touch these dolphins. They're swimming under, they're playing with the boats. And my son remembers the chapter about dolphins playing from Moby Dick. And so we're talking about this literature and the ocean and those dolphins finally speed away and they're gone. And we're going back into the shore and my son just collapses into my arms and we're looking out over the horizon, Catalina in the distance. And he looks up at me and says, Dad, that was amazing. I said, I know it was. He said, Dad, you're the second best dad in the world. 
Well, that's pretty good, son. That's, that's great. Thank you. If you want to be the first best dad in the world, when we get on shore, you'll take me to Target and buy me some Pokemon cards. <laughs> and I looked out at it where the pod disappeared and Catalina in the distance, and I said, you know, son, I'm okay being the second best dad <laughs> in the world. And that is the story, the second best dad in the world. Antonio Sacre with a story called Second Best Dad. We're spending the whole hour today with Antonio, who paid us a visit in the Appleseed studio for an evening of stories for our terrific studio audience and for you. The recordings became an award-winning album called World's Second Best Dad. You can find the album and more of Antonio's work at antoniosacre.com. More coming up. I'm Sam Payne. It's been a special hour on the Appleseed, an hour that we've shared with storyteller Antonio Sacri, filled with good humor and memories of family. And we've got time for one more story. This one's for anyone who has fond memories of a favorite teddy bear. One more tale from Antonio Sacri on the Appleseed. When I was about... <laughs> a little baby. <laughs> My mom and dad gave me a teddy bear. I didn't know, and they didn't know at the time, that that would be my teddy bear. I remember when my children were younger, of all of the stuffies and loveys and bears they had, which is the one that they would hold on to? Which is the one they would sleep with? Well, that teddy bear was the one that I would sleep with. And within weeks of getting that teddy bear, every night it had to be underneath my arm. My mom would then tuck me into bed. She would give me a kiss on the right cheek, and I would go to sleep. Now, as I grew older, I still sometimes slept with that teddy bear, but my mom always kissed me on the right cheek. I'd say, Mom, why do you kiss me on the right cheek? She says, oh, when you were younger, you didn't know your difference between your right hand and your left. So I would kiss you on your right cheek, and that's how you knew. And I thought about that in, when I was in kindergarten. I would think, the teacher says, go to the right. My mom kissed me here. That's my right. And that's how I knew. But I'd be like, Mom, I'm 15. I now know my difference between right and left. She goes, it's a tradition. I'm going to kiss you right there anyway. And she always does, right there on the right cheek. Well, she would tuck me into bed, tuck Teddy under, give me a kiss on the right cheek, and I would go to sleep. And one of my earliest memories was about two and a half or three years old when my mom tucked me into bed and Teddy was not there. And I panicked. My mom said, don't worry. It's been raining all day. We didn't go anywhere. You had Teddy this morning. You're right, Mom, I did. She says, so he's in the house. Let's just look for him. So we looked underneath my bed and underneath my bed. Do you know what we saw? Some slippers. We went into the closet and no, no Teddy in the closet. We went into the bathroom, pulled back the shower curtain and in the tub was my rubber ducky. But no Teddy. And now I started to cry. She says, honey, we haven't searched the whole house. We're going to search the whole house. Underneath the table macaroni and cheese in the couch cushions who has lost something in the couch cushions and no teddy but we did find 39 cents who has found money in the couch cushions but no teddy and now I was an inconsolable two and a half year old and my mom says don't worry your dad's coming home soon from work he'll help you find it all right mom and sure enough a few minutes later my dad comes in and when he saw me still awake, at first he was mad. And I'll translate if you don't speak Spanish. He says, oye, ¿qué estás pasando así? ¿Por qué no estás durmiendo en la cama? Why aren't you asleep yet? And I said, papá, perdí mi osito. He said, oh, perdiste tu osito. No te preocupes, porque aquí está papá. <laughs> he said, your dad is here and we're going to find Teddy. Okay, papá. He says, lo que pasa es que tenemos que mirar con los ojos abiertos. We need to look with our eyes open. Oh, dad, that's a good idea. Wait, we've been looking with our eyes open. He says, well, have you been looking with your eyes muy, muy, muy abiertos? No, no, papa, no muy, muy, muy abiertos. So we look with our eyes very, very, very open under all the same places with all the same results. The slippers, the rubber ducky, the macaroni and cheese. And there was still miraculously more money in the couch, but no teddy. <laughs> and now I started to cry. And my dad said, ay, mijito. De vez en cuando viene momento cuando un niño hay que dormir sin su osito. He said, there comes a day in the life of every young boy where he has to go to sleep without his teddy bear. I said, I know, Dad, but today is not that day. <laughs> 
He said, yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. And my mom did what my wife does to me. My mom put her hand on my dad's shoulder. She said, respira, papa. Just breathe. And my dad said, Bueno, mijito, vamos a mirar con los ojos muy, 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 muy abiertos. That'll work, papa. If we have our eyes really, really, really open, we'll find Teddy this time for sure. And we searched the house again with the same result. And now a boy past bedtime and a frustrated dad from Cuba. And my dad is just yelling and screaming. And he's kind of, my mom says, just breathe. And my dad goes, she said, breathe for real, papa. De todos modos, vamos a tomar un vaso de leche. Let's go get a glass of milk. I don't want milk. I just want Teddy. You're going to have milk. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Breathe, papa. Oh, he's so mad. De todos modos, I'm going to get milk. He goes to the fridge, opens up the fridge, and shuts the door. Are you sure you don't want a glass of milk? I don't want milk. I just want Teddy. My dad, my mom looks into the fridge. Are you sure you're sure you don't want a glass of milk? I don't want milk. I just... Hey, I ran to the fridge, I opened up the fridge, and there, propped up on the shelf, was my Teddy. I said, Teddy, what are you doing in there? And you know what he said? Nothing, because Teddies don't talk. But I grabbed him. I said, I know what happened. I went to get a snack. I put you in there. I got the snack. I left you. I'm sorry, Teddy. And I hugged him. My mom breathed a sigh of relief. My dad breathed a sigh of relief. They both tucked me into bed. They both gave me a kiss on the right cheek and tucked Clyde, my teddy bear, underneath my arm. And the next night, my mom tucked me into bed. There was my teddy. She gave me a kiss on the right cheek, and I started to cry. She said, what's the matter, honey? He's not cold. Could you please put him in the fridge and make him cold? <laughs> and my mom had to put Teddy in the fridge every night so I could go to sleep with my cool teddy. Thank you. And I am beyond fortunate to have been a part of the Appleseed family. Sam, thank you for having me. And, and this audience has been a, an incredible audience and allowing me to do the thing that I need to do. So thank you very much for, for doing that. A story about a beloved teddy bear on the Appleseed. It's been a great hour with storyteller Antonio Sacre telling Appleseed favorites and new stuff, too. There's a good chance that these stories have brought to your mind memories of your own family. If so, open your mouth and share those stories around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. Find more from the Appleseed at byuradio.org, on the BYU Radio app, or by Googling the Appleseed podcast. And if you're listening to the podcast now, consider rating us and leaving us a review. It helps people find the show. The Appleseed is a production of BYU Radio. Our producers are Brian Tanner and Heather Bigley. I'm Sam Payne. And I can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Appleseed.